0: Well, good morning again, Harmony. We are going to be doing something just a little bit different um, in this series. In uh, the book of John, chapter 3, uh, verse 30, there is a beautiful verse that says, He must become greater, I must become less. And it comes from John the Baptist, and it's at an interesting point because If you go through the New Testament, what you realize is is that John's ministry starts before Jesus's. And John grows to great popularity. He has hundreds of people following him and paying attention to his message of redemption and repentance. And so John, when Jesus first starts his ministry, John is the big show in town. John is this fiery gospel-preaching pastor that is... Strange clothes, eats strange food, declares to everybody that he is different, and people are excited about following him. But John is very clear throughout his entire ministry that he understands his purpose, which is he is the forerunner. He is there to pave the way for Jesus. Unfortunately, though, for some of his followers, that was a harder message to swallow than it was for John. And so as Jesus' ministry begins to grow, some of John's followers are like, John, what are we going to do here? People are leaving us to go follow Jesus. How do we stop this? And John goes, we don't. He must become greater. I must become less. And to be honest, what's beautiful about that verse is it's the truth for each and every one of us in our lives as disciples. As disciples, we really should not be sitting here thinking about what is our legacy what will my name be remembered as? Really what we should be thinking is, is how do I lay myself in the hands of Christ so that he can use me in the greatest way possible to build his kingdom and to increase his name? That should be the passion and desire of a Christian. Unfortunately, I don't think that's always how we approach the word. Uh, At the place that I work when I used to be on the phones and do a little bit of sales, uh, one of the things they would teach you is this phrase called the WIFM. And it stands for what's in it for me. And they said a great sales pitch always gets to the WIFM very quickly. Because if I start talking to a potential prospect about something, but I don't hook them right away about what's in it for them, you're going to lose their attention not going to listen anymore because it's not about them. People like things that are about them. And I think sometimes, in fact, I think most of the time we do this when it comes to the word. We read a story, we read a passage, we read something that happens in scripture, and yes, while there is a lesson that God has there for us to learn, that is where we always go first. We read a passage and we go, okay, so what does that mean for me? What lesson can I take away from this? What thing can I apply to my life? What step have I learned here? And pastors, we help you with it, because right, we'll read a passage and be like, okay, today's sermon, the three steps to godly prayer. right? And we, we take some passage that really didn't include you, and we make it all about you. Well, brothers and sisters, what well, we have to be careful about doing that is it misses what the purpose of this book is. The purpose of that book, the purpose of Jesus Christ here, was not to create the best version of you. Christianity is not a self-help psychology. God is not sitting here going, my biggest desire is to create the best version of you. God's desire is for the glory of God to increase and for more and more people to know who God is, the love that He has for them, and to experiencing a saving relationship through Him. When you look at those two things, what you realize is, is if you don't have the right perspective, if all you're ever looking for is what's in it for you, there's going to be many a story where you come to the Bible and instead of seeing the surface truth, You're going to throw that aside so you can get that little piece that's for you. I'll give you a regular one. Have you ever heard the sermon where it's David and Goliath and the point of the story is is that you can overcome your giants? That's not what that story is about. David and Goliath is not about you overcoming your giants. That's not what the story is. The story there is about how God has the power to overcome all. And that when God calls people to do something, no matter how ill-equipped they may seem, if they remember it's God-fighting, not them, God can win the day. And so really the glory of that story, the first thing that should hit us is, how awesome is our God? Our God can take a 12-year-old little boy who has never fought a day in his life, go up against a nine-foot warrior that the world has never seen before, and God can use that boy to win. How awesome is our God? Instead, we just slightly, slightly twist it and go, I can overcome anything. It's a little bit of a different message a little bit of a different message. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want us focusing on today as we go through this passage, as we go through this scripture, is I really don't have a lesson for you. My goal for you when you walk out of today is not for you to go, well, you know what? I'm going to start doing these three things in my life and everything's going to be better. Today, I just want you to listen to the story and realize how great he is. Because, see, brothers and sisters, the problem is, is when we turn every passage into a passage about us, what we're still buying into is this idea that I can overcome, that I can defeat sin, that I can save myself, that I can get the victory. And the whole point of the book is you can't. There is no secret well of power deep inside yourself that you just have to dig down to find. It doesn't exist. If you want to see change in your life, if you want to experience different things, it's not going to come from you. It's going to come from Him. And realizing that it's not that you go to Him when you're at your last straw. It's that you go to Him from the very moment you wake up. He's not a last resort. He's the first option. And so as we go through today's passage, I want you to have your eyes not on you in this story, but have your eyes on him. Because brothers and sisters, the reality is God does not answer every question for us in perfect detail. In fact, the older I get and the more I go through scripture, the more questions I realize I have. But the beautiful thing is, is I don't have a question about who God is, how he feels about me, or whether I can trust him. And so at the end of the day, those questions don't bug me because I trust that he's got the answer. You know, the biggest example I can give you is I, I have a million questions about what heaven's going to be like. I don't, what age will we be? What will my body look like? Will we eat? Will we drink? Will we have animals? Will we play games? Will there be entertainment besides worshiping God? Will we have jobs? I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? I also don't care. Because what I do know is, is the person that I love the absolute most and the person that I trust more than anybody else has said, here's what you need to know about this place. I'm here, and I've made it perfect for you. So that's enough. That's enough. And in fact, the questions actually create excitement. Because now that I don't know all the details, I'm kind of really excited to see what's it going to be like when we get there. How many wonderful and awesome things am I going to be experiencing that I went like I never dreamt it was this cool. But I have that because when we've gone through the Bible, not everything has been about me. It's about falling in love with Him. Amen. It's about realizing Jesus is amazing. He's awesome. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. He's he's amazing. And so, brothers and sisters, I think my biggest hope as we go through these stories over the next few weeks is that you will change your perspective just a little bit when you read the Word. We so often will read a story about Jesus doing something absolutely amazing, and we blow by the point that, wow, Jesus is an amazing human being. In this moment, he showed unbelievable love and power and self-discipline and courage and compassion. We, we 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 just drive right by all that and go, well, really, this is about how I should pray. Well, yeah, there was a lesson about prayer in there, but I think the biggest thing you should have walked away with was Jesus is amazing. That I get to know him, that I get to serve him, that I get to follow him, that I get to, to work with him. What a gift. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, where this scares me a bit is it's not how we look at any other relationship, right? When your spouse does something awesome that makes you go like, I'm I'm just so glad that I'm married to this person, you don't forget that and go, so I think the real lesson here is is that in my life now, when I face a situation, I should handle it like this. No, the first thing you do is like, ah, this person's amazing. I'm so glad I have them in my life. Right? When you're in a real relationship, the first thing you get caught in awe of when someone you love does something great is, ah, oh, that's why I love them. That's why I love them. They're so amazing like that. Yet somehow when we come to Scripture, we miss that. And so I want to challenge you, don't miss that. Actually, let that be where your heart rejoices the most. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And I'll be honest with you this is a struggle for me because as a pastor we always look to turn everything into a sermon. Right? Any story we look to turn into some bullet points that I can feed you. But sometimes it's good to just read the story. It says in John chapter 5 verse 1, after these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having 5 porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. So let me set this up for you, because there's, there's some things you missed in the details. Jesus is in Jerusalem during a feast. And Jerusalem is special because Jerusalem has the temple. And so during these feast seasons, what you have to understand about Jerusalem is it wasn't like being in Jerusalem any other time. Because during the feast, the Jewish people had a responsibility to go to the temple. So often during these feast periods, they would actually increase the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem so that they could say, everybody's in the city. And so imagine the scene of where Jesus is. This just isn't Jesus in New York City at any time. This is Jesus in New York City on New Year's Eve. The people are there to a party. They're there to have fun. Everybody's feasting. But notice, where's Jesus? If you look at a map of the city, what you find is Jesus has actually ventured away from the center where everybody's partying. And instead, Jesus has ventured to the outskirts where they have pushed all the sick, all the lame, all the poor, so that those dirty people don't bug our party. That's where Jesus is. I mean, that tells you something about him right away. Right, here's this huge, amazing distraction, which, by the way, is actually a religious event So you could justify being there. And where does Jesus gravitate towards? The people who are lost, the people that are hurt, the people that are in need. And he goes to the specific place where you find the most desperate of desperate. And the people are all there because there's there's this ritual, there's this myth, that there's this pool of water. And if you can get in it when it starts to stir, when it starts to bubble up, that then you can be cured of your ailments. And so all the desperate people in town who for their whole lives have been trying to find cures, trying to find healing, they sit around this pool and they wait, and they wait just hoping that this myth is true and hoping that they can be healed. That's where Jesus is. He's in that place. It says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, the man who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he would already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man did not know who healed him. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So a couple other things to give you context. The Sabbath... The holy day, God gave a commandment that we are to rest on the Sabbath. But what the Pharisees of the time had done is they had built another fence of rules around God's rule of working on the Sabbath. I've explained this one before you. When I was in high school, I had a curfew of midnight. But because of how disciplined my family was, if I would even cut it close to midnight, I would get in trouble. So what I started to do was if dad said curfew was midnight, I would just reduce that time by 30 minutes. So my buddies would come pick me up and they'd be like, "We can be out till midnight, right?" And I'd be like, "Nope, I need to be home at 11:30." That's my curfew. And they'd be like, "No, but your dad said midnight." "Nope, I am not playing around with midnight. I'm not rolling in at 11:58 or 11:55. I will be there at 11:30." So it's very clear that I'm respecting the curfew. So, not a bad philosophy, but the Pharisees had built this out to an unbelievable extent. I mean, just to give you an example, right? Women were not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Not because looking in a mirror was work, but by looking in the mirror, you might realize you didn't look good and then want to fix your hair or makeup, which that would then be work. So, because that was work, in their opinion... We wouldn't even let you look in a mirror because that could generate the work. Now, brothers and sisters, was there anything in Scripture that said you couldn't do your hair and makeup on the Sabbath? No. Was there anything that said in Scripture that you couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath? No. But the Pharisees had built these walls around God's law. And what they basically said, well, if we never break these, then we'll never get close to breaking his. But over time, what had happened was they lost the whole intention, which was to honor God and to spend time with him. And instead, they had turned God's law not into something about grace and love and discipline, but they had turned it into a religious game. And if I know more laws than you and I abide by them better than you, then I am better than you. I am more powerful than you. I am more righteous than you. And let's be honest, do we see that sometimes happen in the modern church? Do we sometimes see in the modern church where we have become more religious than we have become spiritual? That we have a great love and passion for God's rules and for our traditions and our structures, but we actually don't seem to have a day-to-day personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, that happens. It's what happens when you lose focus. And so... To just show you what happens when this kind of religion occurs, Jesus heals this man. And the people around him go, you shouldn't be carrying that. Do you understand how callous that is? This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years, and when he stands up and walks, nobody goes, you're walking. Oh my goodness, how are you walking right now? Instead, they forget that and go, hey, dude, you shouldn't be carrying that. Nobody is even passing for a second to acknowledge a miracle just occurred in front of your eyes. And what you're concerned about is he's carrying his pallet? Right? This is like driving up to your house and it's on fire and you're like, you know what? We really need to mow the lawn. That lawn, that grass is long. It's embarrassing. I'm going to get on that right now. Your neighbors would be like, your house is on fire, forget the grass. But that's where these people are. Now I want to walk through this story because what I really want you to focus on inside all of that context is what do we learn about Jesus? What do we see about his character? Because brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, what, what makes or breaks your life is not you memorizing everything, but you being in unbelievable love with Christ and following him following him because you realize he's awesome. And so as we look at this, I want just a few things to stand out. One, he's so compassionate. He's so compassionate. This always hits me about Jesus. And I think it hits me because I sometimes am not this way. Do do any of you run into the problem in your life where when you get super busy and you have a lot of important things to do that you kind of chintz out on how kind you are? Right? Like I have important things to do here, people. I don't have time to be compassionate and kind. Like I got to do this. This is important. Can you imagine if Jesus had that mentality in his life? How often could Jesus have been to like the beggars of the world? I am trying to defeat death, people. You're here to talk to me about the fact that you can't walk right now and I am trying to cure the sin of mankind. Jesus would have always had a trump card to just be like, I don't have time to be compassionate right now. I'm literally saving the universe. But that was never him. Jesus is the guy who, in the midst of a big party, sees the poor people on the outskirts and goes, they need compassion. Jesus is the guy who is walking through the streets with mobs of people touching him, and he feels the one lady who touched him and had faith. Jesus is the guy who's preaching to thousands and sees the little guy in a tree and goes, I need to talk to him. Jesus is the guy who preaches a sermon to 15,000 people and at the end of it goes, you know, they're far from home. They're going to be hungry today. We've got to take care of these guys. He was always so compassionate. His love for people wasn't love for people as the group. It was love for individuals. Love for each individual soul that was present. And I love that about him. And sometimes I need to know that. Right, because it's easy sometimes to tell yourself, like, I know God died for people. But sometimes what you need to remember is he didn't die for people, he died for you. If you were the only person, he still would have died for you. Jesus had that kind of compassion, always. And it's mind-boggling to me that he could love that much. That in the midst of of cosmic things, he'd still miss this guy who we don't even know his name. And he'd still show him love. And do you know what's amazing to me? Remember, let's reverse it. What's in it for Jesus? Does this guy know Jesus? No, even after Jesus heals him, he's like, I don't know who's, who healed me. I, don't, I didn't get his name. Right? Does Jesus do some kind of exchange with him? Like, hey, look, man, if after this moment you'll become one of my disciples, if after this moment you will go tell everybody about what happened today, if after this moment you'll go to church, you'll tithe, you'll serve in the children's ministry, if you'll do all those things, then I'll heal you. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus sees a man in need and goes, do you wish to be better? Well, then get up and walk. There's no alternative motive here. It's just kindness and compassion. It's love. Why do we drive by that? Why do we miss that? What a loving act this is. Second, he's not just compassionate. But he's unbelievably powerful. Brothers and sisters, I think in modern culture, we've actually tried to depower our image of God. Because the amount of power he has, if you truly understand it, can be scary. You're talking about a being who says, let there be light and the sun appears. You're talking about a being that we can't even be in his presence. It would burn us up. Remember, Moses asks him, God, show me your face. And God goes, Moses, I can't show you my face. If I ever appeared to you in my full glory, you would die. That's how intense and powerful my glory is. But I think some of us have, have, have tried to push that down so that we're not afraid of him. But brothers and sisters, when we do that, when we try to depower God, one, we've created an alternate God. And two, we forget that our God can wipe out any issue we have. There is nothing that you lay at the feet of God that he is scared of. He's not worried about your money troubles. He's not worried about your illnesses. He's not looking at any of those things and going, sorry, I don't have an answer. No, he crushes all those things. He overpowers all of them. It's so funny how easy it is for us to glorify other humans, but then struggle to glorify God. This man, for 38 years of his life, cannot be healed. For 38 years of his life, man has no answers at all. Jesus walks up and in two seconds says, Get up. And the man rises. How powerful. How unbelievably powerful is he? And here's the beauty. I love when these two things collide. Because let's be real, with human beings, when we typically run into very powerful people, what starts to happen to them? A lot of times it corrupts them. Have you ever seen like the smallest amount of power ever corrupt your coworkers? Have you ever seen that happen? Guys, I remember in middle school or or elementary school when they would pick like one student to be like the bus person and they get the vest. And it was like they got that vest and all of a sudden like, I am in charge here people. I said no running, right? And you're like, dude, who are you? Why do you think you're so high and mighty? Well, because I have a vest. It does not take much. To take people and make them start acting unbelievably arrogant with just a little bit of power. I mean, I see this in Texas all the time with high school football coaches. They think because they're a high school football coach that they become God. And it's like, you teach 50 children to run around on a grass field with a piece of leather you are not more significant than any other individual at this school. In fact, we would argue that you probably are wasting a great deal of their time learning to run on a field with a piece of leather. But man, you give them a headset, you give them a whistle, you give them those young men looking at them, and all of a sudden, they're better than everybody else. Jesus has unlimited power. Yet he's still the guy healing the beggar. It's this beautiful, beautiful combination of unlimited power with pure and selfless love. And it's awesome. Like you ever want to know like why I'm willing to just follow him and I do not want to lead myself and why I'm so excited to be his slave? It's because of those two things. I am following the most powerful being in the universe and he's perfect. He loves me better than I love myself. I don't want to lead myself. I want to follow him. And how beautiful that these are perfectly balanced. The power doesn't corrupt and the love doesn't make him weak. Amazing. It's amazing. So not only is he compassionate, he's powerful, but he's more than that, he's bold. And honestly, men especially, I want you to listen to this. Men especially, because I don't know what's happened, but in the modern church, I think the message that the church has given men is if you're a good Christian man, be a nice guy. Which isn't a bad thing, but it's not really that motivating to men. Go talk to little boys about what they want to be when they grow up, and you never hear them say, I want to be a nice guy. Right? They want to be a warrior. They want to be an adventurer. They want to be a firefighter. They want to be a soldier. They want to do something with danger. They want to stand up against big, ugly things and fight boldly and powerfully. They want that adventure in their lives. And I think a lot of times we take those little spirits, we throw them into church and we go, shh, Sit here, be quiet, and be nice. And I think that's why you look at so many churches and there's not any men. It doesn't feel like they're there to become what God made them. It feels like they've come there to restrict everything in their lives. And we do this with Jesus a lot. Just like go Google images of Jesus and you always get Jesus with this beautiful perm and he's petting a sheep Right Or hanging out with kids. Right? You always see those pictures. And trust me, we just talked about it. This guy is unbelievably compassionate. But he was a rebel. Amen. And he was bold. And he was in your face. Do you think he didn't know it was the Sabbath? You think he didn't know the Pharisees were watching what he was doing? Amen. You think he didn't know that he could have waited one more day or come one day earlier, done the exact same thing and ruffled no feathers? I don't think it's an accident that's the Sabbath. I think it's on purpose that it's the Sabbath. He's sending a message to these men. Your hearts are so dark. You don't rejoice in love. You don't rejoice in goodness. You only rejoice in your laws that lift you up. You've ignored my God. You've ignored the people. You've ignored their hearts and no more. No more will that happen. Boldly, he goes down there. Boldly, he heals on the Sabbath. And boldly, he does it in front of everyone. Because he's not afraid. This is the same Jesus that clears the temple. And so what I want you to see is like, what we struggle with Jesus is, he's this dynamic personality that doesn't easily fit into one box. Right? Like, we like people to be like TV show characters. Well, that's the funny one. That's the smart one. That's the logical one. That's the this one, right? And we like you just to stay in those boxes. It's confusing to us when the really funny goofball starts to say something unbelievably deep. We're like, wait a minute, you don't do that. Why, why are you talking about that? That's not your role. Right, we don't like things that are easily contained. Jesus is without limit, just like his Father God. And so what tends to happen is we pick that one lens that we like the most. We pick that one lens that makes us feel the most comfortable. And that's how we try to make everything look. And we all like the comfortable, compassionate, loving Jesus. Right? The shoulder to cry on. We like that Jesus. That's an easy, safe, non-threatening Jesus. And so we lean on that. But we miss what he was. Bold, unbelievably bold. And we miss that. We're missing a part of who he is because brothers and sisters, you need that boldness in your life. There will be moments where evil stands against you. There will be moments where darkness is right in front of your face and you will not get through it with a smile and a kind wave. You will get through it with determination and power. You will get through that because you realize that's how Jesus faced it. But if we never pay attention to that, then we're never going to be that. There's a reason they killed him, and it wasn't because he was a nice guy. It's because he was bold, he was in their face, he was powerful, and he would not stop with the mission that he had. And I love that, that we see that in him in this moment. So many pieces of him. So many aspects of his character that you're like, this is just amazing who this guy is. There's one other thing, he's focused. Jesus is unbelievably focused on his mission. I mean, we talked about this at VBS with the kids. Jesus is in the temple at 12 years old going, I know who my father is. I know what my mission is. Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, was telling people that he knew he was going to die. and He wasn't afraid of it. He wasn't scared of it. He knew that was his purpose. That was his reason. That's why he was here. And you see that same focus in everything that Jesus does. In this moment, there is unbelievable compassion and power displayed, but I love what happens later. Look at the end of it, right? In the end of it, it says in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, what happened? When Jesus sees him in the temple, does he just focus on the fact that he's healed him? No, Jesus isn't just about the physical need right there. Jesus is about the spirit. And so when he sees this man again, he says, and do not go and sin anymore. Because sin will make you go through worse things than being crippled. Jesus never lost sight of what his focus was, which was to tell people about the sin that was in their lives, how they needed to repent from it, and how God was there to offer them life. And it's why you get these beautiful moments with Jesus where he is both the person who is most convicting you and also the one who is the most compassionate. Right? This is Jesus with the woman at the well going, Woman, the man you're living with right now is not your husband. You've had five other husbands. Let's not fool around about how your life has been. But also, by the way, I offer you water that will thirst your spirit like nothing else. He can both call you out in what is the most socially awkward and offensive way possible, but then offer you the most loving and gracious thing anybody ever could. Because that's who he is. There's some of us, right? We we would do the good deed and go, well, I think that shows them the love of Jesus. He's like, no, I'm really going to make sure they understand what this is about. This isn't just about me meeting your physical needs. You need to give your sin up. That's what I need you to turn from. He never loses sight of why he's here. And in that, there's a great beauty because remember, in being here, He's serving his Father. Like I see some people when I use the word slave or talk about being a servant of God, they're like, why, why do you push it that far? Right, isn't it just enough to believe? No, I don't think it is. And I didn't see it in his life either. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God. Yet Jesus understood from the moment he came to this earth, he was doing the will of his Father even though he's equal to God, he still realizes I am here to do what Father has asked me to do, and I won't lose sight of that. And no matter what pain, no matter what hurt, no matter what difficulty I have to go through, my love for my Father is such, I will do those things to show him I love him. That's what I love about him. Jesus has never asked a single thing of you that he wasn't willing to do himself or do more. be a servant? He was a servant. Give your life? He gave his life. Love your enemy? He loved the people that murdered him. He's amazing. He is truly, in the real sense of the word, awesome. I use that word all the time now. I'm actually really bad at that. I'll use awesome for things that are completely not Awesome. He literally is that kind of awe-inspiring. He's that kind of person that it just takes your breath away. And what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is I don't know why it has become our habit, but so often we read these stories and we somehow drive right by what an amazing person he is. I mean, brothers and sisters, there was probably five other ways I could have taken today's, this passage and turned it into a different kind of sermon. I could have turned it into a sermon about being patient. About how you can suffer through your pain and through your hurt, but if you are faithful and you will wait, eventually God will be there. And in God's timing, he will do what he needs to do. But that's not really what I see when I read this story. I see awesome Jesus. I see a story that reaffirms why I follow him. I see a story that reaffirms why I love that person more than I love my wife and more than I love my children. I see a story that reminds me why I'm willing to wake up each day of my life and go, I will not lead myself today, but I will follow him. Because he's this. He is this perfect, compassionate, loving, bold, powerful, and focused person. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. He is everything and more than we could have ever dreamt of or wished for. He is perfect in the truest sense of that word, And he inspires us with who he is, how he loves, and the power that he displays. Father, I pray more than anything today that we are just awestruck with who you are and who your son is. That, Father, for just a moment that we will forget the burdens on our hearts and on our souls. And that we will just sit there basking in the glory of you that we will take our eyes and we will look upwards and realize that you are awesome and that we get to know you and love you and serve you is a greater treasure than anything else this earth could ever offer us. Father, thank you for being in our lives. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. And ask uh, Brother James uh, to stand up at the back. Um, I'll be up here in the front. And as Maria sings, if there is anything on your heart that you need to know that somebody else is praying for, I encourage you to come up and share with us. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable during service coming up, seek us out after. We are always here to pray with you, we are always here to talk with you, we're always here to help you along your journey. Maria?
1: If you'll please stand and turn in your hip. 307, page 307. Stay. For, uh, hold on. Never mind.
0: I feel like as the church grows, we have more and more weeks where we both get to see the unbelievable joys that we get to share as a family, but also then the great sadnesses that we also get to share as a family. And this week was one of those weeks. It was a week where Throughout the evening, we were blessed to see little children, uh, joyful to be in the spirit, joyful to be singing to the Lord, joyful to be uh, worshiping in God's house, joyful to be in his word, and that was such a a fulfilling thing. It was also a week, though, where we had to say goodbye to our brother John and, and to deal with that grief that we go through when we know that while our brother is in heaven, we no longer get the joy of seeing him from day to day or week to week. Um, I just want to thank, one, everybody in the church for the way you guys showed up this week. Uh, This church always steps up, and everybody always finds a way, whether it's through prayer or through yard work or through food or through whatever. They find a way to help us do what needs to be done. And this was a week of unbelievable work, but so many people stepped up for that. Uh, Miss Lily, John's mom, asked me to share this card with you. And uh, so let me go ahead and read that. It says, Thanks to everyone for the beautiful flowers, to each one that provided food, the ladies that served it, to all who cleaned up afterward. And a special thank you to Brother Luke for the great tribute to John, Maria for the music, Justin in the sound booth. We were so blessed to hear all the good things said about our son and our brother from his loving family. And so uh, his family greatly thanks you uh, for everything you did. I can tell you that uh, John, whether he knows it now or we'll share it with him when we're there, he will love the fact that he had jungle decorations up for his funeral. He will love that I think he had probably the best music I've heard at a funeral. And he will also love that the word fart was used twice during his funeral service. (laughs) He will get a huge kick out of that. Uh, So whether he got to see all that this week or we will share that with him when we get there, uh, I know one day that is going to bring a great smile to his face. But I encourage you to remember, we're not here just to be worshipers. We're here to be family. And it's in these moments that we get to share each other's joys, and we get to divide each other's pains. And I know Lily's family greatly appreciates that she could divide this pain up among the many shoulders and uh, hearts and souls that are here. Uh, Lily, we do have a memorial Bible for you, just to acknowledge uh, how much we love John and how much we're going to miss him. All right, with that, let me remind you guys the two things. You've been given a spirit by your Father of power, of love, and self-discipline. And that means you're dangerous. Let me hear it. I'm dangerous. Come on, say convictingly. I'm dangerous. And you have a mission, which is to go outside those walls and to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So get to it. We'll see you Wednesday, or we'll see you Sunday. But you have a great week. May God bless you.